Thank you for downloading this episode of Case Notes. Case Notes was recorded at the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh as part of the Edinburgh History of Medicine seminar series. You can get news of our latest events if you follow us on Twitter at RCP Heritage. We hope you enjoy the talk. Uh, hello, good evening. Um, my name is Marissa Heatsman. This is Christopher Brookmeyer. Together we write as Ambrose Parry. We are delighted to be able to speak to you all this evening about uh, our writing co collaboration. And we're very grateful to the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh for inviting us to take part in this event. Obviously, we would far rather be at the Royal College of Physicians, um, but in the current circumstances, we're delighted to be able to do this event online. Uh, I think I should point out before we start that there is no social distancing going on because we are part of the, the same household, so we're not breaking any rules here. Um, and I think it's a little awkward because we can't see you at all, so we're assuming someone's listening to our chat here. <laughs> um, but basically what we're going to do is talk a little bit about um, the books that we've written, the historical uh, background, which is really, I think, one of the most interesting parts of the whole thing. And it's of some significance to the Royal College of Physicians because uh, we focus so much on the inhabitants of 52 Queen Street, James Young Simpson, his family, and those who work with him. And the books all take place around the time of the discovery of chloroform. So we're uh, gonna kind of chat to each other a little bit. I'm gonna um, kind of run through some questions we've thought of ourselves. And then at the end, there's a, a opportunity for anyone watching to ask questions and we will endeavor to answer them. So uh, first of all, uh, just so that you know what it is we're talking about, we wrote our first novel, uh, The Way of All Flesh, which was uh, published in 2018. 2018 yes. Uh, and most recently, The Art of Dying, which has just been published in paperback uh, last month. Um, so again, just to introduce ourselves properly, uh, Christopher Brookmeyer, and this is my first question, Christopher Brookmeyer, international best-selling and multi-award-winning novelist who has written more than 20 novels under his own name. Why did you want to collaborate with an anaesthetist who had no experience of creative writing? <laughs> well, first of all, um, I'm realising that I've had many introductions in my time uh, and they often get things wrong, but you would have the least excuse for getting the <laughs> details wrong. Um, and well, why would I want to collaborate? I suppose I wouldn't, it didn't occur to me to collaborate with anybody. It never would have, because the great thing about being a, a novelist is having so much control over your work. Um, and I hadn't envisaged collaborating with anybody, least of all my wife, uh, who isn't from the kind of creative arts. Uh, and essentially like any novel, it all comes down to a good idea or certainly what seems like a good idea at the time. Mm -hmm. um, and as a writer, you're, you're always looking for the next thing that's going to inspire you. And I think what inspired me was what you were telling me. Um, Marissa uh, decided in about, around about late 2012, early 2013, to do a master's uh, in the history of medicine and took some time off. Um, should point out that Marissa uh, hasn't mentioned in depth that she is a an anaesthetist of 20 years experience. She's also a member of the Royal College of Physicians, actually. Um, but she was doing this master's in the history of medicine and as her dissertation was on James Young Simpson. And every, it seemed like every night um, when you came home, you would tell me more remarkable things about James Young Simpson. And when it comes to the world of science and the history of science, history of medicine, you're normally told about the great deeds of, of these esteemed individuals, 
and they're defined by their deeds. Uh, and often people are inspired by that and, and try and write novels based on their lives and, and they run into the problem that they're not always relatable people or you know that their work might define them but the, the human element is problematic to telling a story uh, and this was not the case with Simpson it was what really lit me up was hearing, hearing the human element of this what seemed to drive Simpson was his humanity um, what what seemed to be at the heart of his desire to come up with a, something better than ether was this constant um, need to alleviate suffering. And that, it seems to me, stemmed from the picture that was being painted of him. And it was, it was a picture being painted kaleidoscopically through these wee fragments of what his home life was like or what, what he was like as a character. And every, every night you seem to tell me a new vignette or anecdote about um, what life was like in 52 Queen Street or Simpson's practice, the fact that he had his practice in his house or the, the things he got up to and the fact that all of Edinburgh seemed to come through the door of 52 Queen Street. Um, and I'm not someone who ever imagined writing historical fiction. And we often laugh about this. I used to say I'd... I'd, I'd sometimes have a notion for historical fiction and the one period I said I would never write about was the Victorian period because I thought that doesn't seem to inspire me. And it was, what I love about this job is that you're often confounded by your own expectations. The story of Simpson just made me think this is something nobody has beaten us to. It's one of the most remarkable discoveries in the history of medicine and science. You know, the discovery of chloroform changed medicine and surgery. It had just incalculable ramifications and yet nobody had really told that story in drama or in fiction um, and I remember saying this to you you know nobody's beaten us to this we should write this together um, which is quite a bold thing to say to somebody who's not ever done any writing. Well certainly I thought you were joking um, the first few times you mentioned it but I, I think um, I would agree to you. I would agree with you that the thing that was really um, inspiring was Simpson himself, um, and I rem I remember telling you so many stories about his life and the sort of man he was. And I think possibly uh, th things like the the discovery of chloroform itself. It was such a fantastic story. Mm -hmm. um, for those of you who maybe not know. Simpson uh, was very keen on improving on ether, which had been discovered in 1846. And for the whole of the summer of 1847, um, he and his assistants were, were experimenting upon themselves, trying to find something else. And they would sit around the dining room table inhaling various substances that they'd managed to procure from the Department of Chemistry at the university and various other sources. And um, one evening on November 1847, they sniffed something that they thought didn't look very promising and uh, all woke up underneath the dining room table. And what happened after that is even more interesting. Rather than, uh, you know, write down their findings and decide on what further experiments they were going to do, they invited everyone else who was in the house at the time to partake of this stuff and kept going till about three in the morning and they'd run out of it. Uh, it seemed kind of reckless and- Very Scottish. <laughs> quite possibly, <laughs> but this is one of, this is one of the most um, mm. important moments in mm -hmm. medical history. Mm -hmm. And it sounded like some kind of uh, drawing room farce or something. So there's all, all of these little stories- well, It of... sounds like a bunch of Scottish people on a bad one <laughs> once they'd realized they had a bottle of something really interesting. <laughs> That's the sort of thing that I felt was, you know, elevates the story um, above the normal dry tales of medical and scientific discovery. You know, that that element, I think, made me think this is a, a world I want to explore. Um, and, but then the question becomes, how do you do that? Yeah, it's yeah. far more complicated. Indeed. Indeed. What were your, what were your initial thoughts about how to approach it? Well, I suppose one of the reasons, rather than, we, we talked about we, we could do this together, and what I remember thinking was that it wouldn't be a question of you researching and supplying me with information and me trying to write the story of that 
um, that world because it would just you can't do that you can't as a writer in a way you almost have to find the story yourself you have to do your own research um, and I felt that your perspective was going to be invaluable because not only had you researched this from the perspective of um, doing a, a history degree but that you had a perspective upon it as an anaesthetist that would lay bare drama in places that I would otherwise have missed. Um, and so that's why I, I, I said we should do this together, meaning collaboratively, and that you should play a, a large part in finding the story here because you would find a different story than, than I would. Um, I, I do remember even that when you were researching your dissertation and you were um, trying to find out about whether um, chloroform had been given in the very early days after its discovery. And you inquired at, um, I can't remember which particular source, but the, the archivist of whoever said, oh, I don't think there's much on that. And when you looked, there was just no end of information on that, but the archivist didn't know where to look or what was significant about what was uh, written down. So I, I knew that you could bring something to this that would, would mean um, things would be uncovered that I would have missed or any other writer would have missed. But that didn't take away the main problem is you, if you're trying to tell the story of someone like Simpson, um, that's a man whose his career spans decades and has so many incidents to it. We talked about whether we could, whether we should try and write a kind of biopic type novel, you know, a sort of novelized uh, fictional biography. And just thought that's that's quite a cumbersome thing. You don't you literally wouldn't know where to begin. Mm. And also there's a lot of tragedy. <laughs> and um I, I didn't want to take that on. But mainly it came down to the fact that one of the problems when you write about great historical and scientific characters is most people don't relate to genius because we aren't geniuses. Mm. Um so that becomes a problem. You know, Simpson was was such a, a an indomitable figure. Um and although he was he's so mischievous and he's so colourful, I don't think either of us felt that his was really the story that we wanted to tell uh, in terms of who was the protagonist. Mm. Um, and at one point, I remember you toyed with the idea of writing a novel from the point of view of Jesse Simpson. His wife. Because, yeah, his wife because of the, the, the pr perspective of the wife in that house. Um, and then we, I can't remember quite how we shied away from that, but we came up with the idea that well, you principally came up with the idea that we should have an apprentice because having an apprentice character um, allows you to explain to the reader a lot about the medicine of the time because Simpson's going to be explaining it to his apprentice. So that started the idea of us writing about a, uh, the journey of a young man who's going to become a doctor around about that time. But that was just one step in uh, a long process of what led to the way of all flesh because we... we um, changed their minds about that a lot. Mm. We started writing, as you remember, um, uh, what we used to call a kind of a story that was going to be the battle for this young man's soul. And here's the thing that to many of you out there, if you're aware of my track record of having written about 20 odd crime novels, we were trying not to write a crime novel. And I, I think that that came from me wanting to foreground the medicine and the history and not make all of that um, sort of subject to the narrative needs of, of a crime novel or not write a crime novel that just happened to have a medical historical backdrop to it. Um, I really wanted to engage with this, the, the sociology of the time, the social history of the time and the, the medicine, the science, all of those things. And we came up with this idea, but it, it wasn't really flying. And I, I remember one day you came in and just said, this should be a crime novel partly because there's so much death, mm -hmm. you know, unavoidably there's so much death at this time, uh, inadvertent killings, you know, mistake, uh, accidental killings, or just how easy it was to die of no end of things at the time because the medicine at the time was so rudimentary. Mm -hmm. Or also that, that you pointed out that um, certification of death was literally non-existent. <laughs> so mm. uh, getting away with murder was remarkably easy. Uh, so we realised that we were crazy not to be trying to make this a crime novel mm. so that's when it all clicked into place did you find that um having to write a historical crime novel was um did you find it limiting or did you find it freeing uh, when i say limiting as in 
there's a lot of information that you are forced to put in. Well, mm. I forced you to put in really because I was very particular about the historical mm. detail. So you were kind of constrained by some of the historical detail. Um, but on the other hand, perhaps the fact that no one has a mobile phone and mm. no one can be tracked that way and some of the kind of more complex technological things that contemporary mm. crime racing involves. What did you find? Was it better or worse? Um, it had its advantages and disadvantages. I think one of the easiest things I found was that because you were writing all the medical stuff and you were able to create all this drama and also you were uh, able to find drama and narrative in the story of the discovery of chloroform or the small stories on a, a sort of micro basis of uh, Simpson's interactions with patients, that kind of thing. Um, it made it easier for me to weave the narrative thread through all of that. Um, what was hard was not so much, I mean, it, it's it's a gift when you get given some of those scenes, you know, the, the, to, to have such a drama, such literally life and death things going on all the time. But the thing that was limiting was things you would never anticipate. It was things like uh, how little light there is. Uh, you know, so you're writing about a room and you have to think if it's after a certain time of day, mm. uh, how little could be seen in a room because even if there was any kind of gaslighting, that was that would give you something. But it was people going around with, with candles and, and lamps. It was really dark all the time. Going around Edinburgh after a certain time of night, you had to think about what could or couldn't be seen. Some of those practical implications. I mean, to that end, the book, the third book we've written, I set we set that at the height of summer, so the days are really long. <laughs> and but it also meant there was the implication for the, our other main character. Um, we had our, our apprentice character as well, Raven, but our other main character uh, of Sarah Fisher, who's a housemaid in the first novel, um, is that her being a housemaid meant she literally couldn't leave the house. You know, so we've got. Um, scenes in the, in the novel where we had to have her try and investigate things, but she had to do it on a Sunday, you know, or or, uh, or, or make uh, some kind of detour when she'd some reason to be out on her domestic duties. And these aren't things that you anticipate, but you shouldn't shy away from them as a crime writer because they, even though they're un inconvenient to the character, they make it more authentic and they, they mean you end up telling the story in a way you hadn't anticipated. So in a way, you, 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 as a writer, you welcome the problems. And I'm saying this to you now so you'll remember that because normally, you know, you'll panic when there's a, some narrative problem creeps into the, the story. I think, um, I think that there's a lot of fun to be had in using some of the real historical stories mm. to start with. But I think it's fair to say that having not not have, have myself having very no, very limited creative writing experience. The thing that we you kept having to say to me was, "You're allowed to make things up. This is fiction." Mm -hmm. And I think when you're dealing with historical fiction, there's that tension between um, trying to pay due respect to the real historical mm -hmm. characters that you're writing about and the real historical events that you're depicting, and then weaving a fictional narrative in between mm. them mm. and I think it's fair to say that one of the things we learned early on is that you need to decide what your story is first mm -hmm. and then find which historical bits yeah. fit in. Yeah. Um, you can't try and come up with a narrative that allows you to crowbar in all the incidents or all the details that you would like to include. Indeed. Um, because you, you, the tail will be wagging the dog, those details will, will dictate where the story goes rather than the other way around. Yes. I think there was, there was always a balancing act um, between historical reverence and telling a story that works. And I think we did find that um, balance. You, you would pick me up on things if I was historically inaccurate, um, but it wasn't as if I was always straining at the bit to take it away from the history. To me, the exciting thing and the thing that I'm most proud of with the, the Ambrose books is being able to take genuine historical incidents and characters and weave them in in a way that feels like this must have happened. You know, the, the, the fictional elements uh, don't seem just incidental uh, 
to the, the historical elements and vice versa. Mm. You want to feel like the two of them are completely related, that they're all going on in the same world. And so I, I love when we can point to the finished novel and be able to say all these things happened, all these characters are real, but also specific incidents, even the ones that the reader thinks, oh, they must have made that one up because it seems outlandish. Um, and certainly when it comes to Simpson, if it seems outlandish, that means it's probably true. It's probably true, absolutely, absolutely. But we would argue sometimes about, I think, you um, having gone from medicine into a, a history degree, which was kind of your first brush with the humanities, and it took you a while to understand that um, th that was a different mentality. But having spent all that time learning to distill all this historical information, in which there's no right answer, like there can be in science, um, when it came to creative writing, you to kind of unlearn some of that um, distillation and start making things up. Mm. That was always difficult. And when it comes to the issue of history, I feel like it's you don't mess with important things historically, but you can mess with other details. Like, for instance, um, Simpson's butler. Uh, uh, we have it in the novels. He's called Jarvis. And Simpson did have a butler called Jarvis, but not exactly at that period. And we just thought it's a much better name than the name of the, the butler he had in 1847. Mm -hmm. Uh, so we went with Jarvis. Mm -hmm. So that's a kind of historical detail that you can happily fudge. Yeah. Or the the order of things, I mean, I think we've got, in the, the third novel, we've got, we've changed slightly when certain things happened in Simpson's life, but it's, you know, it's, it's the big events uh, aren't out of place in the timeline. No, yes. no. And I, I remember um, with the, the first book in the series, we obviously wanted to focus on the time around the chloroform discovery because mm. it, it seemed foolish to us to kind of not focus mm. on that. But then when it came to the second book, The Art of Dying, um, it's, well, how do you follow that up? How mm -hmm. do you follow up, you know? You can't discover <laughs> chloroform twice. You can't yes. discover <laughs> chloroform twice. And what was really fascinating to me was the discovery of chloroform was only really just the start mm -hmm. that Simpson spent the next uh, several years fighting to defend it mm -hmm. and all the kind of political chicanery that went on in medicine mm -hmm. and some of the grudges that started coming to the fore because certain people didn't think they had been given enough credit for their part in mm -hmm. it. And that informed a lot of the plot of the second book, mm -hmm. um, which again, when we, when we were trying to decide what to write about, we always start with incidents from Simpson's life mm -hmm. and then kind of build mm -hmm. a kind of mm -hmm. plot around them. So in The Art of Dying, the second book, uh, we took as our starting point, the years after Chloroform's discovery, when one of Simpson's assistants of the time, James Matthews Duncan, seems to have fallen out with Simpson. And along with a couple of other uh, medical colleagues, accused Simpson of uh, negligently contributing to a patient's death. And uh, so we took that as our starting point uh, and had our protagonist investigate this particular incident mm to try it and clear Simpson's name, but then they start discovering other things mm. that lead them to the villain. And again, I think the villains in each of the books we've drawn on real historical yeah, characters yeah. for. Um, I don't know if you want to say a wee bit about the villain in The Art mm. of Dying. Well, I think when it comes to, um, I've created so many villains in, in down the years, but. I think I can maybe understand the, the villains within my own um, time frame. Whereas when it comes to historical fiction, you're, you're having to think a bit harder about what would have motivated people at the time or you know, their values different. So it actually helps to draw upon real historical villainy. Um, and we did that with um, the first novel. And then the second novel, I just remember you were saying, I think I found the uh, the the model for the villain in the next novel. And um, I must say, I was, I was fairly excited, stroke horrified by what this villain uh, got up to. And then utterly astonished when I learned, um, the more I learned about the, this this woman. And it was, um, I mean, it's not a spoiler to say that it, it's a, 
uh, it's a nurse who's, who's murdering patients because we make that fairly clear quite early on. And it's based on a real historical figure of Jane Toppin, um, who just, we will never know how many people this woman murdered because she worked in hospital wards and was just uh, very, very skilled at covering up what she was doing. And also people just died all the time on those wards anyway. Um, and But I think it was the, when you outlined what she got up to, and we realised we could draw upon that. But when you told me the motivation for what she did, I remember thinking, "Wow, this is this is horrible, but it's gold in terms of a, a, a novelist perspective." I also remember you being quite shocked, which mm. I thought was fascinating because you've written some really gross stuff in your time, and um, you've had some really uh, horrific villains in your <laughs> novels. Um, so the fact that this the motivation of this particular character. Mm. You kept saying that you couldn't have made that up yourself. Yeah, I think that is it. That that was perhaps what made me think this is a great character to draw upon because I could never, in the wildest and weirdest depths of my imagination, have dreamt up this as a motivation for what she was doing. Uh, and it's when you come across something that, that surprises yourself, you know it's going to surprise readers. Um, and that, that made it, uh, and really um, intriguing and, and valuable to work with. I always think that, um, I, I know that uh, in the past you have been, or people have suggested that you have some very dark and devious thoughts going on in your head. And to me, I now that I'm involved in this sort of thing, <laughs> I always think that it's nice when people say that was really horrible and you can say, yeah, I didn't make that bit up. You know, <laughs> that was based on, true historical details, mm. true historical characters. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, what I really enjoyed drawing upon was obviously the, the, the villain is a big part of it, but the, the sort of minor villainy or the, the, the way we, we depicted Edinburgh, Edinburgh medicine in the second book, because the first book was establishing how Edinburgh at that time was a world hub for innovation in medicine, a world leader because we were quite determined to write a, a Victorian novel that wasn't all about London um, mm. and that, that didn't centre London as the, the, the heart of all Victorian uh, life. Uh, and so we, we were quite keen to establish how important Edinburgh was at that point. But in the second book, we also wanted to establish what an utter snake pit it was, because a place where uh, there's great discoveries being made and reputations being made, there's also backs being stabbed. Mm -hmm. you know, there's... So we wanted to show how there was such ruthlessness and reputation is all um, to the extent that it's one of the things the book deals with is uh, doctor's reluctance to enter the abdomen. Um, and what seemed quite shocking uh, now is, is not just the reluctance, but the reason for the reluctance, which is that they were terrified of being accused of being reckless and they didn't really fancy their chances of a result, but they'd rather do nothing and not be accused of being reckless than make a, you know, a, a what would be deemed a vainglorious attempt to save a patient. Yeah, there were there was many of them who actually were quoted as saying, it's better to stand by and let your patient slip away mm -hmm. and do something that looks, that would be heroic if the patient survived, but the chances of them surviving were not great. Mm -hmm. So then you were open to the opprobrium of all your colleagues and they were not slow in mm -hmm. kind of um, throwing the blame about when mm -hmm. these things happened. So even after chloroform's discovery and the use of anesthesia in surgery, um, it was they were quite slow to start doing more complex things because there were other things holding them back. Obviously, mm -hmm. antisepsis was, was mm -hmm. still to come in to really be fully appreciated. But they were so reluctant to do anything that would upset their colleagues mm -hmm. or bring down a whole lot of blame upon their head because that could be their career over. Mm. And actually, one of the things that was exciting that we wanted to draw upon was from the perspective of the 21st century, looking at the medicine of the time, there's occasions when you see them come so close but they not quite get there on, in terms of understanding what was in front of them mm. um, because that, that from a historical perspective is fascinating because you realise how many missteps there has to be um, and how many near things there are for every eureka moment mm. um, and so in, in, especially in the art of dying we looked 
I, I suppose to some extent the this sort of scientific process, you know, of, for instance, Raven at one point thinks he's discovered a new disease and his egotism in a way blinds him to um, the, the evidence against his hypothesis. Mm -hmm. But crucially, we, we were looking at things like the, the battle for, for chloroform, but things like um, Semmelweis and how close he, he was coming to an understanding of um, of antisepsis and, and and yet he had a tragic end because other people weren't prepared to um, take his ideas on board. Well, I think with Semmelweis and his hand washing, um, I think what really rankled his colleagues was he was suggesting it was doctors who were was who were infecting patients and causing them to die. A wee bit about Semmelweis then in context. But yes, he was a. a a doctor uh, working in Vienna in a maternity hospital and he noticed um, that uh, there were two wards. There was a maternity ward where uh, the patients were looked after by midwives and there was a ward where the patients were looked after by medical students and doctors. And the mortality rate in the ward looked after by medical students and doctors was twice that of the other ward. And he reckoned it was because they were coming straight from the dissecting room without washing their hands and then examining patients and delivering babies. And so the incidence of sepsis was so much higher. However, when he suggested that that's what the problem was, his, his colleagues became incensed because basically what he was saying was, you are contributing, yes, well, you're contributing to the, the deaths of these patients and they refused to take that on board mm -hmm. they, because he was basically saying the midwives are giving better care mm -hmm. to their patients and they, they just couldn't stand for that. So they refused to accept what he was saying. But I think certainly when you read about 19th century medicine and surgery, a lot is made of the fact that people or surgeons were not particularly um, fussy about how clean the theatre was, that there was always blood everywhere. They wore kind of blood encrusted frock coats to do their operations and the more blood you had on your coat, the better the surgeon you were. But in fact, when you look at it in some detail, there were certain uh, surgeons and physicians who were embracing cleanliness mm -hmm. quite early on. Mm -hmm. Simpson was very keen on hand washing and a lot of the surgeons operating at the time liked a clean operating theatre. Um, so we were already moving towards mm -hmm. this cleanliness uh, before Joseph Lister and his antisepsis moved things forward a little mm -hmm. further. So it's fascinating because things often didn't occur out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. there, was there were lots of people yeah. Uh, yeah. moving in the right direction, sometimes with de frustrating detours. Yeah, I think that's what we were trying to convey within The Art of Dying, that there's, there's sort of nudging ever so close to certain breakthroughs before the breakthrough is made. Yeah. There's sort of a kind of historical irony to it at times. Yeah, and I think, uh, Again, one of the issues of writing this way, um, we kept talking about the amount of discipline you needed to have in trying not to crowbar mm -hmm. everything you wanted into the story. There's yeah. so much stuff that you want you want to put in, but sometimes it just doesn't fit. Mm -hmm. And I'm just wondering if you can think of an example of one of the many little stories that we were fond of that we couldn't quite get in. Oh. I think, um, I think we maybe didn't get it in directly, but for instance, the fact that Hans Christian Andersen came to stay, uh, I think we did, did. Did we ever get that in there or did we just allude to it? Do you know, I, I can't remember. There were so many versions where we tried to kind of get it in one way or the other, but um, it's certainly the whole, it might have been mentioned in passing at some point. Yeah, it's just that it seems on, on the surface as the kind of, like when we first talked about the project, um, you thought, well, so many significant figures from the world of the arts and science, politics, etc., literature, all came to dinner at, at 52 Queen Street. And one of those stories was about Hans Christian Andersen and um, the fact that he, I think it was ether, wasn't it? It was rather than chloroform. And um, they got out the ether bottle after dinner uh, and just were kind of essentially getting high. Uh, and all giggling and 
carrying on and he was appalled by this especially apparently the fact that the ladies were partaking as well and he thought this this ether was such a boon to humanity and that this was uh, very irresponsible and disrespectful and, and he was really quite appalled and, and sniffy about it if you'll forgive the term <laughs> sniffy um, but I just thought you know welcome to Scotland you know that's kind of what people would do um, but we couldn't fit that in and that's that's sometimes the the, the the difficult decision you make is is that there's a, a little, I guess on, on a, a, a DVD, it would be one of the deleted scenes, you know, but <laughs> um, you can't fit it in and it, it would get in the way of the story. And in fact, I think it just simply got in the way of the timeline because it happened before yes. the events we yes. were uh, dealing with. Uh, so it, you're sad to see these things, but, you know, very little is wasted. You often find there's things that we were, um, were writing uh, thinking we were going to put in the second book that ended up in the third book and then things in the third book that have now been held over for the fourth book so it's tough though because I find that there's little stories that you get quite attached to mm. that you're very fond of and it's quite sad when you can't find a place for them but as you say there's a notebook with them all written down mm. and with you know uh, yeah, a fair uh, wind will probably yes. get them in somehow. We'll Writing is in. often uh, a matter of recycling. You know, you never waste mm. anything. Indeed. We've got some questions are coming in we'll, down the side here. Okay. Do you want to start taking some of these? Because if you do keep your questions coming in on the... Yeah, it's, it's actually lovely to see that there are some questions up. because... Um, it sometimes feels like there's nobody listening. <laughs> Here we're just sitting talking to each other. Um, so one of the questions we have, um, oh, how was surgery performed before ether or chloroform? As fast as possible would be. <laughs> I know, I know. I, I have to say that uh, this was one of the things that we wanted to deal with, especially mm. in the first book because I don't think you can really appreciate what a, what a phenomenal discovery ether and chloroform mm. were, you know, what that represented if you didn't actually have some notion of what life was like without it. So in the first book, we do have a scene where an amputation is performed without any anaesthetic. And it's based very much on descriptions that I read about at mm -hmm. the time. Mm -hmm. And um, it, it was horrific. I think I think we probably have a notion um, based on films and things that I, that we've seen that it was biting on a stick mm. or getting yourself so drunk you were unconscious. Mm -hmm. And in fact, that's not what happened. What happened was you were expected just to bear it. Mm -hmm. And the only thing the surgeon could do in your favor was be extremely fast. And uh, just prior to ether and chloroform, being used, uh, surgeons compared their dexterity and swiftness. And uh, Liston, Robert Liston in London, he was one of the first to use ether, prided himself on being able to do a above knee amputation in 28 seconds, which- Still a long 28 seconds. It would still be a very long 28 seconds, but it's, it's quite phenomenal mm. to think that that was possible. But that makes me think of one of the other mm. stories that you're so yeah, fond of. Yeah, I think I put it, I made reference to it in my novel Black Widow um, because it, it obviously it was pre-Ambrose, but we couldn't have gone into Ambrose Parry books anyway. But yeah, I just loved the story that um, Liston was operating and he had, um, he was a, a huge man, wasn't he? And, and the, the, they would, this, surgeons would clamp um, the blood vessels with their hands, wouldn't they? Well, I think the thing is, rather than using a tourniquet, mm. because his hand was yeah. so big, he just clamped his hand around the thigh. He clamped his uh, hand over his um, his assistant on, on the thigh, when it sliced uh, the assistant's fingers off and also um, whipped his knife around and uh, cut the crotch of the trousers of one of the gentlemen who was in the public gallery. Um, and the gentleman in the public gallery died of a heart attack because he thought he wasn't actually injured, but he, you know, if you just had a listing knife, uh, tear open your crotch, he died of a heart attack. His um, assistant died of sepsis from the fingers being 
cut off and the patient died. So what I loved was it was the, an operation with a 300% mortality rate. Mm. <laughs> I don't know what that says about you. That's one of your favourite <laughs> stories. <laughs> uh, another question we've had is, what is the most shocking part of Dr. Simpson's life that you discovered while researching for your novel? Um, shocking, I think the thing that really got me and one of the things that I found, I did find genuinely quite shocking was the professional rivalries and the ease with which uh, colleagues fell out. Mm. Um, Dr. Simpson had an ongoing uh, almost feud with the professor of surgery, James Syme. They hated each other and apparently if the stories are to be believed almost came to blows um, in the hallway outside a patient's bedroom one time uh, and they were always writing horrible things about each other in the medical journals um, I think that shocked mm. me the fact that there was such professional discourtesy mm -hmm. and um, they were always they were Seemed always, very ungentlemanly. Yes, yeah. it was really, it was quite staggering and how, the how weird, they conducted themselves. Weirdest irony, and this is something we deal with in the third novel, is about the them almost coming to blows. But when Simpson became very unwell, it was Syme that was sought to to operate, to operate on them. Yes, absolutely, and that I can't explain. And none um, in none of the books that I have read. Mm. No one offers an explanation as to why Syme was called in to operate on him because they weren't getting on at the time. And I don't think we, I don't know if we got this into one of the books, but about talking about the, the rivalry side of things was the professor, Professor Gregory um, of Gregory's Powder fame, who um, was fined after he got into a dispute with, um, Professor, with, with Hamilton. Professor Hamilton and attacked him with his stick. And uh, when he was fined, he said outside the court that he was fined a hundred pounds, which you can imagine must have been a substantial amount at the time. But he said he would gladly pay it again for another go at him, <laughs> <laughs> which I think would get you done for contempt of court these days. I think the the other um, shocking thing about Simpson's life was the amount of personal tragedy that he and his family mm -hmm. had to endure. I think that was one of the things um, that really stuck with me. Uh, he had nine children, mm -hmm. but five died before he did. And um, I think when you read his own accounts about the loss of his young daughters, it's mm -hmm. really, um, really appalling. Obviously, it wasn't that unusual for children to mm -hmm. die, but he had so many deaths mm -hmm. in his family. Um, it really was it really, it was shocking and mm -hmm. tragic, and uh, we haven't actually got to that yet. That's well, some, but not some, the really tragic Some, not the really stage, awful yeah. stuff. But um, yeah, and I think that's one of the things that really humanizes a character for you. It wasn't all about his great triumphs and being a very famous man. I think one of the terrible ironies was the fact that he was so lauded as a physician, and yet he couldn't do anything yeah, for, for the his, children, for the children that died. Yeah. There's a lovely question here saying, uh, did you make use of the archives at the Royal College of uh, Physicians Edinburgh as part of your work? If you did, what has been your favourite How Amazing moment? Oh, there is one. Actually, um, I did a lot of research um, at Lothian Health Board's archive. Um, that's where a lot of my primary research was done. But I did... Uh, go to the Royal College of Physicians in Edinburgh where the librarian let me look into their Simpsons box. They have this box that contains a little uh, medi medical medicine tin that has little compartments for, for pills and potions and on the inside of the lid it says please return to 52 Queen Street which I loved and there was also I remember in that box a notebook belonging to Simpson from the 1830s when he was just newly in practice as an obstetrician. And it was his handwritten notes about some of his clinical cases. And I remember, and it was, it had soot stains around the outside of it. And it was his handwriting, which I have to admit, it's not easy to read. And it was that, I had chills mm -hmm. 
looking at that. And there was also, there was a, a case he described of a very difficult, tedious labor as he put it. And he said that the baby was eventually born with the last efforts of jaded nature. And I, again, it's, it, I just find it incredible the way that these people express themselves. Yeah. Um, so yes, that was a big highlight for me. It was also um, at the Lothian Health Board that really struck you the, uh, the categorization that was the thing that brought home the how different things were about the condition of the baby. Yes, yes, the um, I w it was so fortunate actually at the Lothian Health Board archive they have the case books from the maternity hospital in Edinburgh from the eighteen forties. So I was able to see when they first used ether and chloroform on the maternity patients there, uh, and what also amazed me was. In the 1990s, I worked at the Simpson Memorial Hospital in Edinburgh, and we had to write down all our cases, anaesthetic cases, in big leather-bound case books. Uh, that makes me sound like I'm about a million years old, but that's what we did at the time. And the the archival case books looked exactly the same. There were these massive leather-bound ledgers, but the noted down the sort of things that we still note down today about uh, expectant mothers, their name and age and how many babies they'd had before. But the thing that really shocked me was they had uh, three categories for the condition of the infant at birth. One was alive, one was dead, and the third category was putrid. And I remember looking at that thinking, that tells you so much about mm -hmm. uh, what having babies was like in the mid 19th century. Mm -hmm. That was pretty shocking, but very illuminating. Mm -hmm. The questions are still coming in, which is gratifying. Um, quick, quick one here, when will the third novel be published? The third novel is called A Corruption of Blood and it will be published in August of yes. this year. I'm pleased to say it's finished. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we did during the summer uh, lockdown. Uh, I had just finished a novel and there was literally nothing else to do and we uh, just, with everything going on around us, it was actually a luxury to lose ourselves in the 19th century. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we wrote A Corruption of Blood from really, I think we, we wrote it over the summer and into the autumn and we're just, we've just about to do the copy edit on it. So yes, it'll be out in August and if if we're all vaccinated and things do improve, or we hope to be launching it at the Edinburgh Book Festival, uh, whether that will be a, a actual live event or a hybrid remains online event remains in the lap of the gods, yes. Uh, there's also a question here that says, as a medical person, did you have to study creative writing to get started? Um, well, I certainly it's always... I think as a medical person, I always think you need to have some kind of certificate before you should really <laughs> embark on anything. Um, however, I didn't pursue a creative writing degree or anything mm. like that, but I did go on several creative writing courses, which were hugely helpful. And uh, my favourite one was um, Moniac Moor, which is just outside Inverness, where you go for a week and um, it's very kind of immersive. Mm -hmm. It was a bit scary actually, but it was very immersive and hugely helpful. And if anyone's interested, I'd highly recommend it. Yeah, I, I remember uh, saying that one of the reasons we embarked upon this was that I, if I didn't think you were uh, equipped for creative writing, I wouldn't have suggested it um, because we talked a lot about st structure and, and story ideas and Marissa's, always my first reader and um actually came up with a plot of quite ugly one morning which you were reluctant to take credit for because of working in uh, an Edinburgh hospital at the time and a plot that involved killing off patients to clear beds wasn't something you wanted to be associated with yes it was a satire <laughs> though. it was a satire and similarly black widow you helped out with a lot of the story and a lot of the information on that so i was quite confident that you know, once you found your feet, you would you you would quickly get a feel for it. But um, I think Moniac Moor was a good idea because it was immersive. You know, you were taken away for 
five days and uh, just surrounded by nothing but countryside and and other people trying to write mm. um and I, I recall you you yeah you, you were quite transformed by the process because it is a kind of in at the deep end thing mm, very much so I'm just looking at more questions here. Oh, how integrated is your writing? If you look at a page now, can you remember who wrote it or is every page a mixture from both of you? I think a lot of it, we can't remember who wrote what because we tend to rewrite each other's material. Mm-hmm. Um, and with the the first book was, Marissa wrote all the medical scenes and then I repurposed them with a view to developing the plot. And she wrote all of the um the Sarah chapters and again I would sort of revise those but when I once I'd repurposed scenes from Raven's point of view Marissa would rewrite those mm. but there's certain things I do remember that I know Marissa wrote them because I thought I would never have thought of that um especially the, the sort of medical historical technical side of it but I think because we've been doing this now for a few books we get to see where we're both trying to write like each other mm. so it's a weird thing we're sort of if I'm writing a scene, um, I'll think, how would Marissa phrase this? And similarly, she'll do the same. Uh, but there are still moments when you look at it and, or, or there's times when I'll say, oh, that was a great line of yours and you'll say, that wasn't me. <laughs> <laughs> Although um, I remember very uh, clearly when um, the first editorial notes came in for The Way of All Flesh and um, our editor had made comments at the side about things he wanted changed or cut or whatever but there was also sections that were just highlighted in yellow and Mm -hmm. when we asked what that was he said oh that's just the bits I particularly like and I remember going going through pointing out the yellow highlighted bits going yeah that was me that was me (laughs) claiming most (laughs) of them yeah, it's, it's been an evolving process, you know, I think that uh, with each book, the way we work together has changed. Um, and the third book, uh, we've been very efficient that way. During the summer, I would go out for long walks. I, I work by write, by walking and by dictating it on my phone. And normally what I would do is transcribe my thoughts and then expand upon them and then turn them into chapters. Uh, and what I was doing was transcribing very roughly then handing that to you uh, and you would expanding knowing where the story was going uh, or sometimes there was whole sections that you were writing on your own while I was trying to um, develop the, the other side of the story so it's it's I think it will be it will be different with every book that we write it's um, I think it's getting more efficient mm-hmm. I think but we, certainly it's it's not it's definitely even more collaborative now than it was at the beginning. And it's it's harder than ever to kind of decide who wrote what. Yeah, about to it. see where one of us ends and the other begins. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, there's an interesting question as well. What other historical medical figure appeals to you for a future Ambrose Parry book once the trilogy's finished? Well, it's not really a question of a trilogy because we just want to keep going with it, expanding this world, but it's a, the world of Edinburgh at the time and the orbit around Simpson has got so many interesting people in it. Oh, so yes, absolutely. The, the third novel um, has a, a character in it, uh, Elizabeth Blackwell, um, who you can maybe say a wee bit more about. She's not central to the story, but... No, no, she's, she was the uh, first woman who um, obtained a medical degree, although it was in the States, not uh, in Britain. But she was the first woman to be registered on the General Medical Council Register in 1858. Um, she was really quite an inspiring figure and we, we have introduced her because she's going to be an inspiration for our one of our protagonists, Sarah, who's very interested in studying medicine, but obviously is going to have a great deal of difficulty because she's a woman. Um, so we, we kind of... We kind of see this not as a trilogy, but as a series of mm-hmm. books that take you through mo- most of the kind of important medical developments in the kind of 19th mm-hmm. century and hopefully get to a point where women did start to study medicine in Edinburgh, although mm-hmm. that's not until the 1860s. But that we would love to be able to keep going till we got to that point. Yeah, we've but, been sowing the seeds as well, because for instance, the character of uh, Henry, uh, who appears in the the, the, the first novel and the second novel is often Berlin with Raven 
Um, and we don't actually tell you his surname until I think the third novel, and he's Henry Littlejohn, who um, you can maybe elaborate well, he's, on he's that. the first medical officer for health in Edinburgh, and he was a police surgeon at one point too. He's, he's a very famous uh, Edinburgh physician. Um, and his paintings in the portrait gallery. Yes, so, yeah. yes. He's, um, so we really wanted to draw upon him as a character. Mm -hmm. And also the interconnectedness of a lot of things that surprises me a great deal. For example, um, we are now, well, I think when we come to the next book, we're going to be uh, 1853, 1854, which is when um, James Syme gets a new surgical assistant. And who marries James Syme's daughter and becomes his son-in-law, and that is Joseph Lister. Mm. And obviously I know about Joseph Lister, Mr. Antisepsis, but I always associate him with Glasgow mm -hmm. Royal Infirmary, but he was in Edinburgh first. Um, so you just think this is a gift that keeps on giving. The more mm -hmm. you read, the more you find out, and mm -hmm. the more interesting it becomes. Mm -hmm. There was also a question that I saw who it says who would you rate more highly Simpson or Joan Snow which is a great question <laughs> because uh, John Snow was around at the same time as Simpson John Snow worked in London and became uh, he worked basically as an anaesthetist after the discovery of ether and chloroform and he had a very scientific approach to the whole thing where Simpson was a little more cavalier, I would say. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, Snow was really quite a remarkable man and he wrote extensively about um, how to safely administer anaesthetics and even developed a vaporizer, which in theory looks very much like modern day vaporizers. Mm -hmm, it's mm -hmm. fascinating. So I think, however, Simpson is a more interesting character to write about because he had so many different facets to his character. The fact that he was a bit reckless, reckless. a bit reckless and a bit um, cavalier mm. about his own safety. And there's so much mischief and humour about oh, him definitely, and that's something definitely. you really need to leaven the, the, seriousness the seriousness and the high stakes. Yes, yes, but I have huge respect for Jon Snow, but he and Simpson were very, very different men, mm. I think. Well, just couple more questions because we're running out of time. One was just, someone's asking, was it common for an apprentice to live with his mentor? I don't think it was, but it did happen with Simpson. Oh, Simpson had uh, senior medical students live in with him um, before they graduated and they worked with him and learned with him. The apprentice system was a bit of an old fashioned system. Mm -hmm. um, and it didn't officially exist. It used to be the official way that you trained mm -hmm. in Edinburgh. But um, around the 1840s, it wasn't the official system, but Simpson still did it. He still had apprentices move into the house with him, which, again, was a gift mm -hmm. to us, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. But, um, yes, yeah, so that was true. That was true. And I think as we're almost up to the hour, uh, a question that's been asked and it always gets asked at events is why Ambrose Parry? Seems a good point to round things off. Uh, well... Interestingly, Ambrose Parrot, we decided on the pseudonym before we had done anything else. <laughs> yes. That was the easy bit, wasn't it? Um, Ambrose Parry was a French military surgeon in the 16th century. And uh, he, he was very famous um, for lots of advances that he made in terms of suturing surgical wounds, in terms of uh, translating Latin texts into French so that they were more widely available. And he uh, wrote extensively about obstetrics um, and, and described one of the manoeuvres that features in the first mm -hmm. book. Yeah. And also when I did my history of medicine degree, the first tutorial that we ever had, his name came up and it stuck with me for some reason. And when we realised we were going to require a pseudonym for our collaborative work, that was the one that we came up with. Was, you, you said we should come, we should be called Ambrose Parry. It was Ambois Parry and you anglicised it. And I thought it was a great idea. It, it, it evokes um, a different historical period. Uh, so it doesn't sound so modern. So yeah, it was, it was the it was first a, thing we actually decided. It was the first thing we agreed on. Yeah. And it was, it was um, a tribute really, wasn't mm -hmm. it? It was a, um, yeah in tribute to the man himself, mm -hmm. yep. But um, I think 
all that remains now is for us to say thanks to everybody for joining yes, us this evening. Yes, thank you very much for listening to us chat to each other in yeah, our living you, room. Yeah, eavesdropping <laughs> on us in our living room this evening. <laughs> I do hope it's been instructive and informative. Yep. And we're very grateful to have been invited and we really hope that in the not too distant future we can come and speak at the College of Physicians in person to an audience. That would be wonderful and um, hopefully that would be the case. Yeah. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our History of Medicine lecture series, Case Notes. This podcast has been brought to you by the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh. We're a charity, and if you enjoyed today's show, head over to rcpe.ac.uk backslash heritage for more information and how to donate. Thank you.